you by Medical Protection. I'm Dr Sarah Coop, a senior medical educator in the risk prevention team. During the COVID pandemic, Medical Protection has sought to provide additional support to our members through podcasts, webinars and articles on relevant topics and challenges that health professionals are facing. One area that we've focused on recently is that of self-care. So recognising how important this really is so that you've got the energy that you need to be effective and compassionate in your work roles, as well as in your life outside of work. So we've produced several webinars with expert speakers on various aspects of well-being. You can have a look at the PRISM e-learning site and access those events either live or you can view the recordings. The podcast that you're listening to today, it really ties in with this theme of self-care, as you'll hear about shortly. So whether you've been a qualified GP, a dentist or a consultant for many years or just a few months, I'm hoping that this will provide a valuable opportunity for you to pause and reflect for a moment on what you know now, both about yourself and your career, as well as looking back to when you were a junior member of staff and having some fresh insight into what you've learned along the way. And I wonder, what advice would you now give your newly appointed self if you could go back in time? So I won't give anything more, I won't give anything more away at this point. I'm just really pleased to be joined by Professor Peter Gillen, who's an Associate Professor of Surgery for the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, and Professor Eva Doherty, also an Associate Professor and Director of Human Factors and Patient Safety. So a warm welcome to you both today. So Peter, along with several co-authors, Eva being one of them, you wrote an article entitled Five Things I Wish I'd Known When I Became a Consultant, which was published online last October. And I know that from our previous conversations that when you had the idea originally, you thought it would just be a little bit of lighthearted discussion, but it really led to significant contributions and in-depth insights, many of which I think will ring true for doctors and dentists working in healthcare currently. So, Peter, tell us first something about where this idea came from and then how it developed into the article. Thanks, Sarah. Initially, we had a coffee time chat, nothing more than that. And with the responses that we were getting, I thought, my goodness, this could be quite an amusing study to do. And when we set up the link for people to fill in the survey that that I set up, I was amazed to see that they were really quite in depth analysis coming through. Uh, originally, I thought this might end up in the Christmas edition of the BMJ or something like that. But actually, as soon as I saw the material coming through, then I realized that it really did need to be taken seriously. And uh, that was when we decided to uh, put it through the analysis properly. And um, what we did was we got uh, almost 2,000 pieces of advice in total. So it was quite a quite a challenge, but we used... Uh, uh, thematic induction analysis with three independent observers to reduce bias, and then statistically looked at all the information to divide all the pieces of advice into 20 different themes. Um, and so it, it became a much more serious study, Sarah, than we had originally intended, yes. Yeah, you said it was really clear that people had taken this to heart when they were reflecting on it and obviously writing their replies. And what made you choose five things to ask for rather than one? Well, I thought one might be very limiting and also that it might tempt people to be quite glib in what they might say. So by asking people to sit down and reflect on five things, I was giving them a good bit of latitude and also making them really ponder what they would like to have been told and not to limit it. Um, I also designed a study that we didn't use a drop down menu for people to select 
uh, pieces of advice from. And although that might have meant that we lost some people because it's uh, it's more difficult to write free text analysis, it did mean that we got a more in-depth feeling from people, I felt. And the, the advice given was was really quite considered. So, so I was very pleased that we went for five rather than one. Hmm. And what types of consultants responded and, and also where were they working? Yeah, that's interesting. We got a, a huge variety of, of different specialties involved. And while the majority were from Ireland and the UK, um, there were in fact uh, 20 different jurisdictions represented. And it was remarkable that the teams that emerged were in fact quite universal and didn't seem to be affected by whatever healthcare system people were working in. So the same pieces of advice were mirrored right across the globe, actually. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I think to know that it wasn't um, just one place that that you got the the results and the, the replies from, that it was quite widespread. And another thing that you looked at was how long consultants had been in post. What was behind that question in your mind? Did you Did you find anything significant? Yeah, again, uh, from the outset, my own bias was I thought that older consultants might have a different take to younger consultants, but we needed to analyze those teams statistically. And yes, there were differences, and I I think we'll come to those later perhaps in the podcast, and some of them were very, very interesting. Yeah, so don't keep us in suspense any longer then. So do tell us, what were the top five pieces of advice that you found in in your research? Well, Number one past the post and a clear winner was self-care. Second was work-life balance. The third was relationship with colleagues. The fourth was team working. And the fifth was continuous education. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And I think just to start that off, then let's think about, or ask you, what do you think that people mean by self-care? Yeah, so this was um, the clear winner in the study, if you like. And what people meant by self-care was um, the most common phrase that I came across was, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so the advice for self-care was very simple about plenty of rest, sleep, exercise, diet, and taking care of one's mental health as well. So, so I read those far more frequently than any other piece of advice. Yeah, thank you. And, and just coming to you now, Eva, you know, self-care also you found was significantly less likely to feature as a reply um, in those that had more than 20 years in practice. So what thoughts did you have about why there was that difference? So I think this reflects the differing priorities that different generations um, have. So, you know, people born in the 40s, 50s and 60s are what, what are what we call baby boomers. And it's well recognized that they, you know, they they're good at tightening their belts. They, you know, they they go down with the ship, so to speak. Whereas more um, recent generations are, you know, better at uh, prioritizing self-care um, and looking after themselves. Um, they, you know, that's a priority for them. Yeah, and I'd be really interested as well to know what you think we can learn from those findings to, I think, to help us understand about the level of burnout that we're seeing amongst consultants, because obviously this is really related to, to self-care. What thoughts have you got on that? 
Yeah, so the bad news is, is that, you know, levels of burnout are, you know, um, equally as high as other more junior colleagues, um, if, 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 if not even higher in, in, in some aspects. I mean, for example, um, we know in, in Ireland, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in the UK, that consultants report, about half the consultants will report reduced levels of what we call self-efficacy. And so that's the sense that, you know, that they're not making a difference. And, you know, and I, I think that's very, it's, it's sad, it really isn't it, that, that they have worked so hard to get to this level and, and that they're clearly working in a healthcare organisation that's not supporting them um, to make change and improvements and to actually make a difference. Um, and this is one of the well-recognized toxic factors that Christina Maslach and her colleagues um, have identified through their empirical research. Um, and it's this lack of, of a sense of control. And there, there are other toxic factors um, that exist, uh, can exist in an organization that will trigger burnout. So they will include things like um, a sense of unfairness, you know, that maybe resources, et cetera, are not being shared out equally. Another one uh, can be an unreasonable workload, though it's certainly not the most critical, uh, is what Christina Maslach's research has found out. And another toxic factor can be, can, can have to do with, you know, is there a hypocrisy in the organization? Do perhaps, you know, people are, are not meeting the standards, um, you know, that they espouse to um, by their behaviors. And another to possible toxic factor is a lack of trust. So the question is, you know, do you feel that other people that your colleagues have your back and that they'll support you you know maybe if you have something going on in your family or if you know if you're sick do you feel like you can phone up a colleague and say you know will you cover me uh, for today um and then the the last one and and i think you know very interesting one is this sense of 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 lack of recognition and reward and it doesn't mean money um, you know, organizational psychologists will tell us, you know, that people don't leave their jobs, they leave their bosses. And so that just reflects the, the desire we have. It's one of Maslow's needs, a hierarchy of needs. We need to be recognized for what we do. We need somebody to say, you know, you really handled that situation really well, or that was a, you know, a, an amazing um, operation, the way you, you know, saved that patient or whatever it might be. Or thank you for doing this for me. You know, if we if we get that kind of recognition, you know, we will put up with a lot. Um, so they're the, as I say, the toxic factors. And and I think you know people often talk about burnout as if it's some kind of personal failing, but actually burnout is an indicator of how well or how badly an organisation is functioning and how how supportive it is of the individual. You know, if you get burnt out, it's an indicator that there's a poor fit between you and the organization you're working for. Um, it's not an indicator that there's something, you know, wrong with you as such. Yeah, I think that's been described as a workplace phenomenon, hasn't it? And I think it's helpful to look at those six toxic factors to reflect on personally, but also as leaders or team colleagues, I think it's helpful as well to look at and just think, is there anything that, um, that I can do, that we can do, that might help to support each other, to support ourselves, um, particularly in the, current, in the current climate. So Peter, the second highest piece of advice was work-life balance. 
How might you interpret the, the findings that you had on this? Well, uh, work-life balance was, again, as you said, number two. And it was, I think, a little bit sad to think that older consultants in particular were writing down that they wished they paid more attention to work-life balance uh, in their younger years. Um, as Eva said, people work so hard to get to the top, um, achieve their goals, get a top job, whether it's a consultant post or dentist, GP, whatever it might be in medicine. We see the same themes running through all these. And then people sometimes just get overwhelmed with the responsibility and bury themselves, as it were, in their work and feel that success is measured by how well their work career progresses over the next 20 years. And then one day they wake up and realize that they've missed so much outside of work, perhaps significant birthdays or anniversaries or family events. And suddenly it dawns on them that work is work and life goes on outside it. And it was sad to see that people were regretting that they hadn't paid more attention to work-life balance over their career. Yeah, thank you. And I've heard, um, we're looking at some research by Shannafeld, who came up with similar factors to Maslach that you talked about, Eva, the six toxic factors, but rather than calling it work-life balance, it was called work-life integration. And I think that's often a helpful way of looking at it, that often there's not a distinct um, boundary between work and outside work, but more about integration. And I'm just wondering, Peter, what you thought junior doctors or junior um, dentists might take away from from that insight about work-life integrational balance? I I think it's important that, you know, when they hear this podcast today, that maybe it makes them reflect on what kind of boundaries they're setting themselves from the outset. I think particularly uh, if you begin well and pay attention to self-care and work-life balance, it's a real recipe for success. So I I would really hope that people would listen today and maybe that this would come as a little bit of a a check that people could sort of take a step back and say, well, how am I getting on? How's my work-life balance? And, you know, have I got the balance right now? Because if you don't begin the way you want to, it just tends to slip and suddenly 20 years have gone by in the blink of an eye. And that's so sad to realize that you just never corrected it in time. Yeah, so just pausing and stopping and thinking, I think, is really is really key, isn't it? There's so many pressures on clinicians, both external and internal, at different stages of life, different stages of career progression that can really add to the challenge. So I think what you've said there about the importance of boundaries, the importance of needing to pace and set limits, um, and also recognising what you can control, what's within your control, what's within your influence, and not expending a lot of energy on things um, that are perhaps outside of that, but also just to bring it back to you know, what you can do and, and as a team what we can do that can be really helpful so Eva I don't know what your thoughts are any practical tips for those who are really struggling to do this as, a, as we said particularly at the moment during COVID when workload is understandably higher and the ability to recharge outside of work might be even more difficult to do what sort of thoughts have you got so the point about awareness has already been made and I think that that is the necessary first step and then After that, I think it's about thinking about the known ingredients for work-life balance and and if you like doing a little self-assessment and sort of seeing how do I score on these I mean minding your your relationships is key um, and that is obviously what can get neglected um, in terms of work-life balance so 
It's about making sure that, you know, you that you attend to your relationships with your family, your partner, your friends. They're a really good source of stress relief. Um, and then it's all the other good things like sleep hygiene and exercising and um, maintaining a healthy diet um, taking time out for some relaxation and mindfulness. And I usually find when I have these conversations with clinicians that um, about half of them are, you know, doing okay on, on, in terms of their work-life balance. They, they're managing, you know, to do these things. And the other half aren't. And it's often because they just really haven't thought about it or because they assume that because they're so busy that they just don't have time. But when they see their peers managing you know, these aspects of work-life balance, that can really get them thinking. And it is about being creative. You know, where can I get the exercise in? Maybe I could cycle to work. You know, how could I attend to my relationships? Maybe I need to organize, you know, a date night with my partner. You know, these, it's just, it's about being creative, um, I think. And, uh, and because it's definitely challenging, there's no doubt. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it comes back to recognising the priorities and then looking to see where you have choice and thinking, you know, what can I, what my choices in this situation? And I think your point there about really maximising and, and really investing in supportive relationships is so key in order to balance that, as well as identifying what things perhaps energise you as well, as well as what drains you. And, and again, getting that, that balance there. So hopefully those are helpful things for people to, to think about. And then coming back to you, Peter, relationships with colleagues was third on the list. So what sort of things did people mention in their replies um, relating to this theme? Yeah, so, so this varied quite a bit. In general, some people felt that uh, this was really key to a good work relationship, that if people put a lot of time and energy into getting on with colleagues, that it would benefit in the long run. You know, others had a, a more practical aspect to say it was a little bit like being born into a family that you didn't get a choice. But there were comments from younger consultants who would visit units and feel that if colleagues uh, were perhaps, you know, perceived to be uh, less than welcoming, then there was an indication that people wouldn't take a post like that. We do know that if you find yourself among colleagues who are dysfunctional, then that does have an evidence-proved basis for an adverse patient outcome. And I think it's also very difficult personally when you find yourself in a situation like that. So I think that definitely um, working uh, with colleagues, perhaps thinking about maybe once a month having a meal or something outside of work to promote a social aspect to work as well is, was, was very often advised. And, and, and I would concur with that. Yeah, and, and medical protection because of the associated risks with poor patient outcomes and that suboptimal patient care, you know, because we know that dysfunctional interactions with colleagues and, and those toxic work environments and persistent conflict can really link in with those things, as, as you've said. Um, you know, it's, it's, as well as being highly stressful for the individuals themselves, we're really keen to look at ways of, of supporting and addressing that. So we have various courses on helping people to um, improve their relationships with colleagues but when it's difficult. But even what else could people do to reduce that risk so as peter says i think it's about appreciating each other as as individuals all with a with a common goal in you know which is patient care and sometimes i think you know that can people can 
not make that explicit. Um, and once you start to make that explicit, that can help towards negotiating. But I think also, you know, the silos that we have in healthcare is a feature whereby people feel very different to each other and, you know, lose sight of the fact that, that you know, we're, we're all after the one thing. Um, is And it's, it's really about, you know, taking a step back and asking yourself the question, why are they being like this? What could be their perspective? Where are they coming from? Um, and there are skills that you can use as well um, to help to reflect that and to demonstrate that you do appreciate the other person's point of view and you do see where they're coming from and, and how can, can, you know, this be resolved? But it's, I mean, I've always been interested when I run training on this that people are really struck about how you know, how devoted and compassionate everybody is, even though that may not come across in, in some of their interactions. Um, but it, it, and it's, it really is about appreciating people as individuals, you know, with valid perspectives. Yeah, thanks, Eva. I think that really ties in with a lot of the key messages that, that um, medical protection and risk prevention we try to, to get across in, in when we're talking about difficult interactions with colleagues or difficult interactions with patients it's about trying to find you know, where's the common ground also avoiding making assumptions it's so easy isn't it, to assume what the other person's motivation is and, and that often isn't correct and I think instead trying to think as you've said you know what might they be thinking what might be behind their behavior can we shift our own mindset can we keep an open mind in order to find a solution here this could actually work for everybody and I think that does take a little bit, again, of stopping and thinking and challenging our own thinking to, to do that and recognising, you know, what, what might be going on. So following on from that a little bit, female consultants in your in your survey listed the ability to say no significantly more than male consultants did. So what might be some of the reasons for that, um, Eva, do you think? Well, you know, I'm wondering whether that reflects perhaps a number of things. I mean, you know, it's definitely true that, you know, even in the 21st century, you know, the responsibility for the family uh, management, if you like, in terms of childcare and, you know, other domestic responsibilities, you know, often does still fall to the female. And, and maybe there's a tension sometimes between, you know, being asked to do extra things and, and a, you know, and, and what has to be um, managed at home also but I wonder too does it does it reflect the fact that maybe we don't make it easy for female consultants to say no um, and and that you know healthcare has all these uh, expectations for consultants that they have to be all things to all people and that maybe it's easier for for male consultants to kind of step in there you know as we've been saying and to the detriment of their work-life balance and their self-care but for women it's it's harder for them to do that because you know they might have children to collect or look after etc so um and I, I wonder whether you know do you know do we support women saying no in our society I don't know you know I I think we might you know we could be guilty of some some gender bias there you know, whereas, whereas it's easier for men to say no than it is for women to say no. Thanks. Those are interesting, interesting thoughts. And I think some of that links in with what we talked about earlier about setting boundaries and, and often the importance of being able to say no in order to have that healthier work-life balance. But perhaps it's that some people have never really learned how to do that. And so 
are there any strategies that you might suggest that can really increase our ability to say no effectively and respectfully so that people do listen to it and actually that it's safe to say no? So I suppose we're thinking about appropriate assertiveness here, I think. Yeah. And and the skills will overlap with, you know, successful negotiations as well. You know, they're very similar. But I think probably the most effective um, tip I can offer is try and start your sentences with the word I. You know, I think, I feel, I'm not comfortable. I need, I need to get back to you, maybe, could be another one. Just give yourself a bit of time to think about it. Um, I'm not sure I can, you know, meet that deadline. You know, what, whatever it is you're going to say, say it with, with the word I at the beginning, and you're much more likely to come across as assertive. Yeah, I agree. Those I statements is all about you taking responsibility for your decision rather than a you statement, which can often sound quite accusatory or labelling. So a you statement would be something like, you're so demanding, um, asking me to do that extra shift. Um, whereas an I statement is very much about taking that ownership. And I think that's that's really important as well. And I think the other tip that I've often um, found helpful and, and talked about on training is think about if you're saying no to something, it's because you're saying yes to something else. So often that's quite helpful internally to think, actually, I'm going to say no to that because I want to say yes to something and, and getting that sense of, of choice and balance as well around that. So, Peter, coming on to the final bits here, talking about improved communication with patients. This was the sixth top piece of advice that people gave. And I know, again, this is something that we associate with increased medical legal risk. So it's another important area to, to focus on. And from your involvement in communication skills training with the National Healthcare Communication Programme that I know you, you are involved with, which one or two communication skills would you say are really key in terms of making a positive difference in interacting with patients? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that, Sarah. And again, I was delighted to see it come up so high in the list of priorities here. I think if I had to choose one or two of all the communication skills, I think active listening and demonstration of empathy would be my my, my top two. I, I think uh, increasingly we're seeing um, more and more technology, more and more computerized interactions with patients and the ability perhaps to listen to people, actively listen to people is, is suffering, I think, because of that. And certainly patients are saying that if they don't feel listened to, then that's a slippery slope for them and complaints and so on can easily follow. Um, empathy, I think, is 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 huge. Um, uh, I know I've heard Eva say this many times before, that when we've got nothing else to give patients, we certainly have empathy. And so I would really counsel people to, to learn the skills of demonstrating empathy uh, because, again, that's something... That, that if we can demonstrate empathy, patients will really feel that we've made them special. And I think that that's an important point in any consultation with a patient. Yeah, I really agree that active listening and empathy are two skills that are so important. And we often think that we're very good at listening. We think we're very good at empathising and yeah, it's a chance sometimes to stop and think, actually, how well am I listening? How well am I empathising? We could all learn to do that even better. And those are two skill, key skills as well that really communicate compassion to people. It's often an intention of ours, but it might not come across in the way that we want it to. So, yeah, just encourage you to think about that a little bit more. Eva, did you want to add anything to that? 
Yeah, well, I think one of the skills you or the drills, if you like, you can make yourself do, which will definitely make you a better listener, is to repeat back to the patient or the family member what you've just heard them say. And that will make you listen. And it'll also, you know, reassure the person that, that they're being listened to. And I think in terms of demonstrating empathy, it's not about saying, you know, I understand what you're going through. It's about saying, you know, I can see you're really upset and I can see, you know, that you're very frustrated. So it's about actually saying what you can see or if you're on the phone saying what you can hear um, and, and the emotion, actually naming the emotion. You know, it's often called naming the elephant in the room. You know, you actually say the emotion that you can see that the person uh, is expressing. Yeah, thank you. So being more specific in your summarising back and your recapping, that's what often reaches out to the patient and really lands well with them and helps them to feel that you have understood. So rather than saying, yes, I understand, which we may, may, may not, but it's about showing that you have heard them and that's what people are wanting. So finally, um, Peter, some of the replies that you received from the survey weren't really advice to their younger selves as such. They were more comments or anecdotes. And, and just out of those, I'm just interested to know, was there any that, that struck you or made you smile in particular? There were, certainly. Some of them probably not repeatable on a podcast, sadly, uh, Sarah. But, but certainly uh, one of my favourites was... Um, there's nothing at the top of the greasy pole. And that certainly made me smile. So, but there were there were lots of very humorous comments as well. But but overall, I think people took the survey really seriously. And um it's been a, it's, it was a pleasure reading all the comments. Some of them very tough to read, but but overall um it was a really tough, tough read at times, but very well worth it. Yeah, thank you. And and just out of interest, do you think that if people were to read this as their younger self, do you think they would have heeded it? Well, I suppose that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Uh, maybe I'll, I'll leave the last word to Oscar Wilde because he was the one that said um, uh, the only thing to do with good advice is to pass it on. It's never of any use to oneself. And maybe we should think about that. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. So thank you both, Peter and Eva, for a really fascinating discussion. So do look up the article. You can find it on the internet under five things that I wish I'd known when I became a consultant. And maybe this could be a good conversation starter for you at your next team meeting or a CME peer group. You might be surprised by some of the answers that you hear from different people. It will give you some insight into what's going on for them, what they think about. And it perhaps wouldn't always be what you might have guessed. So thanks again for downloading the podcast and remember that there are wellbeing resources on our website and as a medical protection member you're entitled to access free counselling if you wish to use that benefit. So thank you very much and goodbye.